Well, good morning again. So we have a, a position opening. If you'd like to be the person who selects ushers before the service, uh, let me know after the service. Even if you're not here, you can text them. And um, if we don't get it filled, you're probably going to see that this is empty for a while. So uh, let me know after that. But uh, good morning again. We're just glad you're here. Uh, today we are finally getting back into the book of Ephesians, uh, which should be uh, a lot of fun. Uh, so if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and turn over that way. Ephesians chapter 4 is where we're going to be. Uh, now, a little background, since it's been a while since we've been in Ephesians, uh, uh, it is what's called an epistle. It's just an old word meaning a letter. Uh, it was a letter that was written by the Apostle Paul to the church in the city of Ephesus, which at the time was the fourth largest city in the world, so not some small nothing place. Uh, the idols of the culture, meaning uh, the things they tended to worship and bow down to and look for their satisfaction in, uh, were materialism and greed. Uh, but they're unique from us because they also had the idol of actual idol worshiping, uh, which came with it a, a sensuality. See, Ephesus was this well-known place uh, for being the home uh, of the temple of Artemis, which was this, this false god that people would come <clears throat> and, and worship. And part of their worship experience was uh, made popular, you might imagine, because there was a large number of temple prostitutes. That was part of their worship for this, to this idol. Uh, and so not unlike Americans, or we Americans today, they were seeking their, their satisfaction in all the wrong places, and, and we're not finding it. Um, and one of the things that was, was interesting, you know, even as we Americans can relate to, they, they really liked their idol worship. They didn't want to give it up. It was something they, uh, they loved. You know, in Acts 19, when Paul is in the city, he'd visited the city, he'd been there on his missionary journey, he'd spent many years there, uh, and there's a blacksmith by the name of Demetrius, uh, who started a riot uh, because of Paul. He's so angry at this point uh, because he was losing business as people were converting to Christianity, as they were coming to have put their faith in the Lord. They no longer wanted these little handmade idols that couldn't do anything, and that meant the guy who made them and sold them was losing money. And so this huge, this huge riot comes up, and, and for the sake of his life, Paul leaves the city, and he goes on to, to another place to minister. And so this letter is coming back to a church, people he knows, but this is about five years after he last left the city. Um, it was written about the year 60 A.D., to put that in kind of world history perspective. Uh, and his reasoning, he writes to Shepherd and to teach these new Christians how they might live an undefiled life, uh, holy lives, even as, as Christians in the midst of this incredibly corrupt culture they live in. Uh, and so if you think you're living in a difficult culture today, let me, let me just put you at rest. The Christian church has lived in many, many, many corrupt cultures in, in history. Uh, and the church has survived through each and every one of them. Uh, and so then the, the first half of this letter is a, a great deal of theological truth. Uh, he explains the gospel. He talks about our union with Christ. That's a huge theme in the first half. He speaks of our unmerited love that, that God gives to us. He speaks about uh, salvation, that it is, it is a gift. It is by grace, through faith, nothing that we earn. Uh, you know, we're not earning it. Our adoption into the family of God, uh, we cannot justify ourselves. Uh, we freely receive the forgiveness from, this, from the gracious hand of God. And so this second half, though, uh, really kind of changes perspective a little bit in the sense that it is speaking about the results that we hope to be true, the results that we expect to be true because of the redemption that Christ has accomplished for us, because he has filled us with his Holy Spirit. And so this second half, I, I think you're going to find, is, is very practical. 
Uh, I think you're going to mostly love it. Um, we never like it when our own idols are challenged, and we're going to see a little bit of that. But uh, I think overwhelmingly you are going to enjoy being challenged and changed by this, this book as we go on. So uh, this morning we are going to be focusing in on chapter 4, verses 7 through 16. But I'm going to read from verse 1 there just to give us a fuller context. Unless your memory is better than mine, and you remember back in May, was it, last time we, we were in this book. So... Uh, Our passage today, uh, just to set it up a little bit more, is is about God's design of diversity within the body of Christ. Um, There has been unity, 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 unity. And then he's going to say, yes, unity in all these things, right? Uh, And you're going to see it when we read this text. But there is diversity in gifts, diversity in the types of people and personalities that make up the church. So uh, Ephesians 4, verse 1. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord... Urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to a measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, making the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. The grass withers, the flower fades. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We we ask that you give us faith to receive it, faith to believe it, and fill us with the Holy Spirit so that we may live out what we learn here for your glory. Please give us focus this morning to listen and to hear and to not be distracted by worries and plans for later and everything else that that seeks to to, uh, step into our minds and steal this time of feasting on your word. May the preaching of your word and the receiving of your word bring glory to your name, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So this section we're looking at begins with that major change of direction words, but, right? We see this over and over again, and it's always this, 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 but, and then there's a change of direction here. And we see it there. There is one Lord, one baptism, one spirit, one body, one hope, one faith, one God, but, right? But everyone is the exact same. 
No. Uh, there is diversity of gifting and personality in the church, and that is by God's good design. If you are in a church and everyone thinks and looks and, and acts and behaves and, and has the exact same gifting, it's going to be a very, very um, unhealthy situation. Um, that's what we're seeing here. And so we're going to unpack this, this section in these four sections. Uh, you can see the outline in your bulletin, so I won't say it to you. Uh, but first thing we've got to answer here in this question is, <clears throat> what is meant by that first phrase where he says, uh, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gifts. See, grace is always something that, that is given. It is something that is unmerited, unearned, undeserved, but, but grace is not always talking about eternal salvation itself. Grace, in this context, does not... Uh, does not uh, refer to different levels of, uh, of saving faith. Rather, it refers to different gifting that Jesus gives to members of his body, uh, but to every Christian. And so we're going to see here <clears throat> that these gifts are uh, what they are a bit later, but the first thing we see is that right after that is <clears throat> in verse 8 here, Psalm 68, 18. That's, that's the quote there, right? Verse 8 is an exact quote from that. Uh, in that psalm, there's this picture, and the one who, who actually ascends is God the Father. And so Paul is, is taking this, as the New Testament um, uh, writers often do, and he's pointing that this is a foreshadowing. This is pointing forward uh, to Jesus Christ, to his coming, to the Son of God, to his accomplishing victory uh, for all who are going to look to him for the forgiveness of sin. See, remember that, that after Jesus' resurrection, um, Jesus victoriously ascended, right? Goes up. He went up in the clouds and, and disappeared, returning from where he has eternally dwelled. And, and as Mark chapter 16, verse 19 tells us, <clears throat> Jesus was taken up into heaven and he sat down at the right hand of God. And, and Jesus is the only one to ever accomplish this. John 3.13 points out that, that no one has ascended into heaven except he who de descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And, and Paul tells us this. He's telling us this for a reason. And the reason is he wants us to understand that Jesus right now currently sits in a place of power. And, and from that place of power, he intends to fill all things, as it says there. That's the language of verse 10. To fill all things. It's the idea is, is completion. Um, Jesus, did Jesus accomplish salvation uh, at his death and resurrection for us completely? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and this is the thing as Christians we need to remember that Jesus did, did more than that, though. He, he intends for his church, um, more for his church, more for his people. There is more to bring to completion, and, and so he gives these gifts in the way that he sees fit. And the gifts that, that God says he gives in this particular situation here is, is people. And that might sound a, a little weird to you at first, you know. Uh, you know when I first kind of thought of that, I, I couldn't help but think of that, that often angry quote or, or question, right? What? Do you think you're God's gift to women? This is not that at all. Okay? Not at all. Um, these gifts are for the church. Uh, these gifts are, are, are people who have been gifted by God in specific offices for the good of God's people, for the glory of God. And the first gift he speaks of here is, is apostles. Apostles are a gift to the church. Apostles were these eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Jesus. They have seen the resurrected Christ. 
And they were commissioned by Jesus Christ himself to be an apostle. It's a unique role. It is what's called a foundational role. And, and once the foundation was complete, the office of apostle ceased to exist. Uh, it's not unlike when you're, you're building a, a house or a building. You know? There are specialists that come in with their big truck, and children love these trucks, and they pour the cement, and, and they make this foundation. But once the foundation is complete, they pull out of there. They leave. They go away. They don't stay there, right? Their job is done, and it's fulfilled. And so we no longer have apostles today, but they were very, very important in the history of the church. It was a gift that God gave to his church eternal. Uh, the second gift listed here is prophets. The prophets were inspired men and women who received from God's special revelation and shared it with God's people. Again, this was a foundational gift of God for his church. Prophets, in, in, in the sense that we know them here, do not exist in the same way. Um, because the prophets of old were receiving this revelation through God speaking directly to them, through visions. And, and today, the reason they don't exist is we have the word of God right here before you. If, if you want to know what God has to say to you, open this book and read it and learn. It is so full of wonderful, wonderful word from God to you. We have the Old and the New Testaments. The idea of prophesying still exists today, in a sense, uh, the Puritans, right? The Puritans actually referred to preaching as prophesying. Their reason for doing so was because preaching is, is taking the word of God received and proclaiming it to the people of, of God, to anyone who will listen, really. And, and so the scriptures are, are no less an authority than if God were to speak audibly to us right now. Do you understand that? I mean, it no less an authority than, than if some Morgan Freeman-like voice were to speak to us right now audibly. That's, that's what this is. Uh, and so when we see the, the next, we see the, the role of the evangelist. The evangelist literally means the bearer of good news. Not a bad title, right? The bearer of good news. All of us have been blessed with the responsibility to tell others the good news that Jesus saves sinners. Uh, but an evangelist is someone who's been especially gifted by God for that purpose, for that role at proclaiming the gospel. The, the work of an evangelist is not a foundational work. It is the responsibility of every ordained minister. It's the responsibility of every, every Christian. But there is a unique gifting that comes to some as an evangelist. Um, it, is a, you know, it, is, it is building on the foundation. That's why it still exists. Uh, in 2 Corinthians 5.20, it teaches us that uh, there it says, We implore men and women on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. There is this, this call to be reconciled to God. And until Christ returns... We will continue that call to, to, to others to be reconciled to God. Um, the list ends with shepherds and teachers. Based on the way it's written in the Greek, it's most likely the same office. They're tied together in a unique way. Uh, the Latin word for shepherd, anybody know it? Probably not. No, no classically trained people here. Um, no trained musically, yes, but not in the language. Um, shepherd is a pastor. Right? You're more familiar with that word pastor, more likely. Um, the, the terms for shepherd gets really confusing in Scripture. You, uh, and the reason is there's all these interchangeable or overwhelmingly interchangeable terms that can be used. You've got uh, pastor and overseer and elder and presbyter and uh, a few other ones. You see, uh, shepherds were always God's plan for his church. Sometimes we wonder, is this, is this God's plan later? Uh, in Jeremiah 3.15, God foretells this saying, I will give you shepherds after my own heart who will feed you. And listen to what they're going to feed them with. They're going to feed them with knowledge and understanding. That was God's vision for, for the care of his church, 
with shepherds. Uh, here at Manhattan Pres, the, the men who have been examined by the Presbytery, the men who have been um, uh, have called by the congregation through a vote, the men who have been ordained to the office of elder are myself and Timothy Duritz and Travis Shanahan. Uh, and God willing, as, as the church grows and we move forward, those, we will add to those numbers. Um, so in Acts 20, 28, Paul is speaking directly to the elders of the church of Ephesus, the same ones that he's writing to here. Uh, but there he says to them, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, that's elders, um, <clears throat> to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. To care for the church of God. So um, I do want you to know that, that we as elders, Tim mentioned it earlier already, that we take very seriously our calling, uh, our calling to guard, our calling to nourish, our, our calling to protect that, that those that God has placed under our care as a church. And, and as much as we, I, I want to go into, this is the thing, this is where Laura helps me out. I've got to cut things out. Uh, because I wanted to go into all this stuff about teaching elders and ruling elders and explain all this stuff to you, uh, but that's not what this passage is primarily about. And so that would be taking this, this rabbit trail that we've actually already done. And so if you want to know more about elders and how they work in our denomination, our church, um, in, in the fall of 2016, there's a sermon on First Timothy that explains it all for you there. Uh, you can go listen on the website. So we are going to move forward, but, but here's the thing. This list of offices is, is not an exclusive list. Uh, we know that it doesn't include deacons in it, and deacons certainly would be included if it was an exhaustive, a complete list. Uh, and so there's a purpose here. He's listing these off. He's showing these things so that you understand that, that gifts have been given to the church, uh, and, and that should be asking, uh, leading us to ask this question, right? Why, right? I, I want you to see this. When you're reading Scripture, it's good to ask these kind of questions. Why has God given these gifts? Isn't that kind of always our question with gifts? I, you know, I'm not a big video gamer, um, but one game I played my entire life is The Legend of Zelda ever since it was an 8-bit thing in 1985 and I was about 7. Um, I've played that, and, and every single version of that game in history has had this one constant, that you will receive a gift from some random character and, and you have no idea what to do with it. And so you have this question. You know, okay, something's built into this that these are to be used for. I, I've got to figure out why I've been handed a, a hand glider or a, a mirrored shield or whatever weird object it might be. And, and, and that's the first thing you do is you start, what am I going to do with this gift? I, I, and, and I know that there is a very specific purpose for it, right? There is some fruition that should come from it. Uh, Joe Rigney, an author, get, did a great service. Uh, I was reading recently in, by him, and, and he points out that all of God's gifts have been given to us, not only that we might enjoy them, but remember that, that is so we can enjoy them, not only that we might enjoy them, but so that they might prove fruitful in our lives. You realize that every gift that God has given you as an individual, as a church, is that they might prove fruitful in your lives. That's true of the money that God provides you with. That's true of the intelligence you have. That's true of your musical skills, your various talents. Uh, that's true of the car you drive, even if you think it's a crummy car. Uh, you know, it's true of absolutely every gift that God has given you. And, it, and it's also true of these gifts that God gives to the church. They are with fruitful intentions. That's what he's desiring them to be used for. And so then we see in verse 12 why God gave apostles, why he gave prophets, why he gives evangelists and shepherds and teachers. 
I mean, look, I, this is why we have you open your Bibles. Look at the text before you. Verse 12 tells us to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Saints meaning all Christians. I, I hope you understand that. Just like when we read Catholic Church and the affirmation of faith today. That's the, the universal true church, right? Uh, here, saints means all Christians. And in an age of hiring things out, though, it's easy for us to forget that, that ministry is, is not only the job of pastors. Okay? It is our job, but it's not only our job. It's not only the job of elders either. Uh, you know, it's not the only the job of hired staff. It's not only the job of your campus minister. Okay? You, you can't just say, you know, uh, I don't actually talk about Jesus to people because uh, I tithe, so I got a guy who does that for me. You know, it's not like the mechanic um, or any other situation. Um, you know, all Christians, and including you, are intended and gifted by God to minister to others. And so our job as shepherds, then, is to prepare you, to empower you for ministry. And that's what 1 Peter 4.10 teaches us as well, where it says, As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. You have been gifted to put it to use. It's even more emphatic in Romans 12, 6, where it says, Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. Even Paul at that time is trying to encourage them, use your gifts for the sake of the kingdom, for the sake of ministry. See, we all partake in ministry, and that means both to, uh, ministering both to spiritual and physical needs. In other words, we, we all need each other. And I don't know if you grasp that as much as I really want you to. We all absolutely need each other. You know, Christine needs Katie. Um, Jordan needs Eric. Veronica needs Michaela. We all need each other. And, and we've been given differing gifts to minister with, and so use them. When, when these leaders, then, are, are doing a good job, but we see what should happen there in verse 12. This is what should result of this, that, that the, the building up, of the body of Christ. Okay? Notice that's not an individual thing. That is a corporate thing. The body of Christ. Uh, not just individual Christians, but the collective body. So, so you might want to ask about now, right? How are the shepherds at Manhattan Presbyterian Church equipping the saints for ministry? And this is a good question because it falls back on us to ask ourselves this. You know, are we doing it well? Are there, are there things we need to be doing different? But, but I'll, I'll tell you right from the list that you know, it came to mind off the bat was uh, the preaching that you hear each and every Sunday is, is part of that, whether it's one of us or whether it's uh, someone that we have uh, approved to come and preach to you. Uh, the prayers that we, we have for you. The administration of the Lord's Supper. This is not just something we tack on at the end. This is for your, your nourishment, uh, for your good. The, the men's study and the women's Bible study, the Lord was mentioning earlier, the, the bulletin in your hand is for the building up of the saints. I don't know if you think of it that way, but we print it for a lot of reasons. Uh, one of them is not because it's the easiest thing to do. Uh, but one of the reasons we do print it is that you can take it with you. You can read over it. You can look at the confession of sin again. You can read the affirmation of faith again at your own pace and see what it's teaching you. You can look at any of the notes you might take out of it. Um, you see, you who are, are members also know that if you fall into unrepentant sin, we're going to come alongside and we're going to do all we can to set you back on the path because we want to see you walking in the Lord healthy. Um, parish groups, starting after the service today up at the Shanahan's, you know, uh, Sunday school, one-on-one -on -one time, and a host of other things are intended to build up the body of Christ. As verse 
13 begins here, then we, we see the larger goal, the unity of the faith, um, the full knowledge of, of Jesus Christ. We, we tend to think of the Christian life in these larger categories, or I do, maybe you don't, that there's the unbeliever and there's the believer, and then the, you forget that the, you know, maybe that's all there is, right? And, and unfortunately, that, that leaves us stagnant in a lot of ways. You know, those are very important distinctions, but the good news of the gospel is that we are, being, we are being saved by Jesus, and also, we are being made in the image of Christ. The, the theological term for this is sanctification, right? We use a big word like that. We want you to understand what it means. Sanctification means to be growing in holiness. It means to be being made more like Christ, actually. Sanctification doesn't just come with time. It's not that I've been a Christian 10 years, so I must be incredibly sanctified, right? Um, you know, just as simply growing older doesn't actually mature anybody. You've met some adults that, there's one of them laughing back there because he's really immature. No, uh, doesn't naturally mature, right? There is, uh, there is something to be strived for. Maturity must be sought after. It is part of someone's discipleship process. You know, seeking conformity to God and his word being ministered to, following the example of mature Christians in your life, uh, you know, learning to use your gifts in God's service. These are all work. Uh, these, are, these are all to work towards our maturity as, as we are disciples of Christ that are walking and following after him. Verse, verse 14, then, is, is speaking of, of the young, immature Christian. It's this picture of a child, no offense, uh, offense children, but you're typically the example in Scripture of an immature Christian. It's just the way it's pointed out. Uh, many of you experiences this, either as a child or as an adult, uh, you know, this, this picture he's painting. I know this is Kansas, but it's picturing something of an ocean, right? There's waves. There's a, you know, a, a young boy standing on the, uh, in the ocean, maybe up to his waist. And each wave kind of pushes him one way or pushes him another way. He really doesn't get to decide where he goes. He, he goes wherever the wave might push him. But then there's his mother standing next to him, standing strong. The same waves don't push her one way or the other. Her feet are grounded there. And Paul's concern is that the immature Christian will believe any new idea about God that someone might tell them. That they, have, they lack sense of, of what is true and, and what is false. And so these, these waves push the young child, just as these waves push the young child one way and another, so these, these ideas might push a, a young believer one way or the other. See the word doctrine there, right? Doctrine is a word that has been given a, a bad rap uh, unfairly. What's the, the phrase? Uh, doctrine divides and love unites. I mean, even that's a doctrine when you consider the fact that doctrine simply means a, a teaching. Um, and, and there's both false teaching and true teaching. True teaching, true doctrine is good and to be sought after just as much as false teaching is to be uh, or even ignorance, is to be avoided and combated. As a, a Christian, you ought to seek to understand what, um, what's true about our triune God according to the self-revelation of God in his scriptures for us. You see, if we're going to have unity, if anyone's going to have unity, let it be because we have sought the Lord in his word, not because we have buried our heads in the sand refusing to know the word of God at all. Um, so the point here is that we're to learn truth from the Word of God, and, and that's what gives us stability, so that when someone teaches something, 
something like universalism, this idea that you know, all, are, all are redeemed apart from Jesus. When we hear something like that, that we can stand confident that this teaching is false, and we know it's false because it contradicts the word, which is where we find solid ground to stand upon. So there's just two more verses today. I love these two verses. Um, you know, when preparing to preach, you kind of have to figure out where you're going to put your focus. This, this is where I want to put the focus today on these two verses. Uh, it gets especially applicable. Uh, assuming you haven't zoned out yet, uh, the question ought to be rolling around in your head at this point, right? Like a, a marble looking for some place to go. You know, ha- having been equipped, how do we minister to each other so that as a result, we grow into this collective Christ-likeness, okay? This is the question I want you to think about collectively here. Uh, you know, the question is so, so, that, so that we grow from, from children who are pushed around by waves to mature adults in the faith who can stand firm. Uh, what can we do so that this church grows and builds itself up in love as verse 16 refers to it? And the answer here is in verse 15. I'll be honest, it's so simple, the answer, that we might, we might miss how profound it is. Plus, you've heard it in a lot of settings in your life, probably. Speak the truth in love. Pretty simple, right? Um, we tend to hear this, and, and, and if you're like me, I, I tend to think of like the first round of something like American Idol, and that person comes up, and they, they sing terribly. Um, and you, you kind of wonder, who told you that you sang beautifully? You're, you're 24. Someone should have told you that you can't sing by now. And yet here you are on national TV. And, and, and the reason people watch these is one of the judges, you know, judges has to lay it out now. You know, listen, you, you sing like a wounded coyote. And your friends, they're all liars, all of them. You know, it's entertaining. And, and so, yes, you know, this... This passage is about being honest like that. In general, that's absolutely true. But within the context of this passage, it's about a specific type of truth that must be spoken in love. And it's very, very important. Um, and, I, and I say it's a specific type here because, uh, do you notice in verse 11, do you notice that, that entire list of people that have been gifted to the church to equip the saints? Did, did you notice that every one of them is a truth agent? An agent of truth? Apostles laying a foundation of true revelation from God? Prophets who, who spoke truth often to their own detriment, to their own death? Evangelists who speak truth about our sinfulness and about the, the death of Jesus for the forgiveness of our sin? Pastors and, and teachers who are called to feed the congregation with the nourishing word of God. And, and the call here in verse 15 this is where you've got to get this, right? Because you can think this is only about elders and, and evangelists and stuff. But this is coming back to you. This is about the entire congregation. The call here in verse 15 is that you and you and you and you, that you speak the truth in love to, to him and, and to her and, and to everyone. That you actually speak the truth in love. You know, when you, when you find yourself wanting to believe something that's against God's good design for you, which has been made known to us in his word for us, you know, when you, when you find yourself in that situation, then you absolutely need your brother or your sister in Christ to speak the truth in love into your life. 
That's what this is getting to. You see, what we, what we see here is, is the more we speak the truth and love to each other, the more that we collectively as the church become uh, Christ-like. As the body, the church is being built up and strengthened. To speak the truth in love can be difficult in our, our world today. It, it just can be. It was true at their time as well. It is, you know, because sometimes the truth itself is just considered this unloving, unkind statement in and of itself. And so we've got to understand that in our culture, it can be very tempting uh, to speak falsehood in love um, instead of truth in love. I'll give you an example. Um, say you have a friend. His name's Ben. Ben has red hair. He has to have red hair because my kids tell me that all red-headed kids are named Ben. Um, I don't know why. They're weird. Uh, we tried the challenge at once, and they were pretty accurate, actually. Uh, so anyway, Ben. Ben <laughs> professes faith in Jesus Christ. He, he finds himself falling in love with a very kind woman who's a Muslim, and she's asked him to, to convert to Islam. You know, some of his, his friends are, are watching uh, Ben's life, and they see just how in love he is. They see how happy he is, and they want him to continue to be happy. And, and so they tell him, you know, all that God requires is that, that you be sincere in your hearts. You know, it, it, you know, whatever you believe, just be sincere. It really makes no difference whether you're trusting in Christ or, or whether you're looking with, you know, trusting the tenets of Islam. So long as in your heart you are sincere, God will honor that. That sounds kind, doesn't it? It does. It sounds so kind. And you might even find yourself wishing this were true. But, but you know from Scripture that it's, it's not true. You know from, from Scripture that there is no path to forgiveness. There's no relationship with God except through Jesus Christ. I mean, and that's not me. That, that's what Jesus himself teaches in John 14, 6. You know, but, but you want your friend to be happy. And, and this woman, she makes him happy. In, in this moment, do you affirm what you know to be false? Do you say nothing? You know, I'll just, I'll just stay out of this because I don't want to offend Ben and his red hair. Um, I don't want Ben getting upset at me. No. This, this is where this really hits the ground in your life very apical because what Ben needs from you in this very moment is to speak the truth in love. That's what Ben needs from you. Love looks at the eternal view of things. Love speaks truth always. Not with lofty condemnation, but with kind-hearted truth that Ben needs to hear. I mean, you can apply this to all sorts of false statements being said with good intentions all around us, you know? Uh, these things that we say because we want them to feel better in this moment, whether it be uh, promiscuity or unbiblical divorce or issues of sexuality or transgenderism, even labeling some sins as, as diseases that simply aren't diseases. You know, I, I listened to a, a woman minister this summer while I was on vacation, uh, and she said to this room full of people, and this is, this is a quote that I wrote down at the time, the gospel is not forgiveness of sin, not eternal life, it is health, healing, and wholeness. 
And the room overwhelmingly just nodded with approval because that sounded pretty wonderful. Um, no one's against health, healing, and wholeness, right? Um, but that's not what the gospel is. She, she went on to say that, that hell is not real. And, and, and as she gives her explanation for this, her only basis for this was that, that she explained that God is loving, and if she were God, this is what she would do. And I, I kind of thought to myself, it doesn't matter what you'd do if you were God, because you're not God. Right? Um, but Jesus is, and, and Jesus tells us hell is real, whether we want it to be or not. And, and he also rescues people from that hell. That's the good news. The good news is not that there's not a hell, but that Jesus rescues his people from that and this woman was very friendly, very articulate, but, but she spoke falsehood, and, and so she failed to, to speak the truth in love. She failed to speak in love, and, and it broke my heart. And if I'm absolutely honest, it, it angered me inside. So let me turn this over now, right? Because there's another side to the speaking the truth in love. Because, you know, if I had had the opportunity to, to speak the truth to this woman, I would have struggled to do so in love. And I mean that. I probably would have been an absolute jerk to her. Uh, you know, you don't speak the truth in love. And then I'm going to come in and do the same thing from the other direction. Which, you know, um, that's the way it is. This, this is the other way that we can fail to speak the truth in love. And I think you need to know this. And I, and I say that because overwhelmingly I understand that, that you have a good grasp on truth. But we don't always have a good grasp on love. You know, when we, when we speak the truth in pride... Or, or when we speak in self-righteousness or indifference, which is a very terrible thing, or, or in downright hatred or anger, when we speak the truth that way. You know, when our, our statements, if we were to kind of parse them out and we'd say, you know, you can absolutely confirm this is true according to Scripture. That's not your excuse to say anything any way you want, right? Well, it's true, so I can be a jerk. No. Um, you know, you can look to the scripture and say it's absolutely true, but, but love is lacking, lacking in our tactfulness, lacking in our tone, lacking in our choice of words, lacking even in the intentions of our heart. You know? You know, consider the great passage on love, 1 Corinthians 3, 4 and 7. I won't read it here, but, but know this, you know, go to this and evaluate your words if they're loving. You know, am I being patient with this person that I am speaking with? Am I being kind to this person? Am I being arrogant or rude to them? Is my heart's desire right now to be proven right? Right? Yeah, you Calvinists, right? Or do I want them to learn God-revealed truth? Do I want to see their, their souls nourished? Do I want to see them walking with the Lord? Do I want to see peace come to the life? What is my intention? Okay, we're going to stop here, but let me just say this. You know, if, if, if we're going to grow in faith and in strength as a church body, that's, that's what we want to do, okay? Um, then we need to speak the truth of the scriptures to each other in love. I need to know, listen to this, I need to know that if I unrepentantly chase after some sin in my life, or if I abandon the, the true gospel revealed in the scriptures for something that's more palatable to the culture, that, that I need to know that our elders, that any of you, will speak the truth in love to me. And I need to know it's because you, you care about the glory of God, and you care, uh, uh, you, you care, <clears throat> 
more about the eternal hope of my soul than you care about saying what, I, what you even think I might want to hear in that moment. In other words, don't affirm my sin when you should love my soul. And not only me, we, we all need that from each other. That's, that's the truth and love he's talking about. We, we need that if we are to be able to be built up in love as Paul ultimately, God himself, is teaching us in this passage. That's the truth and love. We need the word of God being spoken to each other. That's what's going to collectively build us up. Let us pray.